Chapter 22 Slow down, Jamie, I shouted. The boy was so far ahead, all I could do was follow the noises he made, disturbing the undergrowth as he went. I tuned myself into the sounds of crackling branches and rustling leaves ahead. It was easy for him to dip in and out of the obstacles in our way. He seemed to know where he was going and could squirm through the tightly packed vegetation. I had to climb or go around the worst of it. I decided I had to go along with Jamie if only to calm him. He would have been inconsolable otherwise. As far as Jamie was concerned, we were at a fatal disadvantage. He insisted we had to retreat from our exposed position without delay. He almost sobbed when I told him I didn't want to retreat. I didn't see why we should, I said. For me, the better plan would have been to wait by the lake while he returned to his camp and raised the alarm. That's how I put it to him. Raise the alarm, Jamie. Go tell them there's a seriously unwell man here. The prospect of his tears affected me greatly, the way he shook his head, stretching his mouth apart, as if my words were too painful to listen to. He seemed genuinely afraid. I couldn't bear it. I dressed as I went. My clothes were still ravaged and wet. I'd lost a sock somewhere. I favored my right foot with the sock I still had, as there were fewer blisters on it. The zip on my trousers caught itself, and I poked my eye on a branch because I was too busy fiddling with the stupid thing. I hadn't properly buttoned my shirt or even tucked it in. The tails hung unevenly over my belt. Both sleeves of my jacket were torn, coming away at the shoulders. I tried working at my tie. Even after six or seven attempts, the top length would always come out too short, making me look silly. I found the going arduous, and the pain in my arm was such that I had to forego my general appearance or risk losing sight of Jamie altogether. Luckily, it wasn't so far to go. I caught up with him in a clearing. We were less than a kilometer from the lake. Three brightly colored bubble tents had been pitched close to the middle of the clearing. There were camping implements lying around, including some folding stools and other clutter between the tents. I saw a gas stove and a portable cool box. I was so intensely relieved as I emerged from the wild, I dropped to my knees and held my arms up in what felt like a position of devotion. I think I might have cried out to the glory of God had I been able to catch my breath. Jamie was waiting by the smallest tent. He watched as I collapsed to the ground, convulsing with dry sobs. He was quiet and made no attempt to approach. In fact, despite my poor condition, the tiny ever-present part of me that observes, that I'd come to trust, warned of a problem. I looked over at him. I called out to him. When he didn't answer, I knew something must be wrong. I struggled back to my feet, tipping and swaying as I went. I could only stagger those last meters to Jamie's camp. Somehow, the fact that I'd arrived made me feel I could do without things like balance and coordination. I tripped over my feet, my arms dangling, my whole body in a forward slump, swerving across the clearing towards Jamie. It was disconcerting. All the while, he just waited for me, looking strangely at me. When I got to him, I asked, Where is everybody? He shrugged. Are you with your parents? 
That's my mother's tent. He pointed at the other two. That's my sister's and that one's mine. I asked him where the others had got to. His reply was a questioning, straight-into-me look, all the more potent for his remarkable eyes. To me, this look felt like the last two cards on the card castle, the one that brings the whole pack fluttering down. There was some calamity going on here. I had the strong impression Jamie was alone and something terrible had happened to his family. I eased myself onto a canvas stool and buried my head in my hands. Is there a mobile phone? I asked. I had one, he said, but I lost it. Do you have any food? I asked. Sure, there's plenty, he said. I reckon we're probably safe for a while. From who? Jamie didn't answer. I looked up and repeated my question. Jamie clicked his tongue in annoyance. I thought he looked ashamed. You should know who I mean by now, he said. I nodded. I didn't want to think any more. It was my hope that his mother and sister might soon return. I reached over and lifted the top off the cool box. In it were some bottles of lager and a number of stacked plastic containers. I lifted one plastic container out and opened it. Inside were four slices of pre-cooked pork cutlets, a heap of mashed potatoes, and a helping of sauerkraut speckled with caraway seeds. I swooned, hardly hearing Jamie's protests. You're not going to eat that stuff, are you? he asked. There was a pot on the stove I could dump the food into, and a box of matches tucked underneath. Everything was so handy, I didn't bother looking for cutlery or plates. I ate straight from the pot. Twenty minutes later, I was using the warmed-up pork to scoop mash and kraut into my mouth, shoving too much in at once and swilling it down with beer. I must say, this was fantastic, maybe the essence of all happy feelings. Every mouthful was a shout for joy. Jamie had kept his distance all the while. I told him he should eat too. He said he might have a bowl of cereal later. I grunted, hardly caring what he said anymore. He kept watching as I wolfed it all down, slobbering over my chin. I should have been disgusted with myself for the way I was eating, for not even asking if I could have his food or paying any heed to his plight or what I supposed his plight was. What did I know? Under the circumstances, I couldn't help being intensely greedy. Two days of wilderness and unknowing had done this to me, and I was going to have to live with the feelings I'd unearthed. But that was for another time. Even when I was finished, my sole aim was to crawl into the biggest tent, Jamie's mother's tent, and pass out drowsy on beer and a full stomach, and ready for a long, dreamless sleep. Through the opening, I had spotted a sleeping bag on an air mattress that looked incredibly welcoming. I peered at Jamie with drooping eyes, greased all over my fledgling beard, and a fine burp mounting. I'm going to get some rest, I said. That's okay, Jamie said. I'll take first watch. I nodded. Great. Wake me when your mother's back. As my last drop of strength was expended, falling into his mother's tent, covering myself in nylon perfumed with sweet fragrances, I had a sense of foreboding about Jamie's family. When I woke, the foreboding was still there, only more extreme. It was still dark, too dark to see. I sat up, now terrified of the feeling I had. Chapter 23 
Annie's friendship with Valerie Malone collapsed overnight. Teresa had no idea why the relationship should have ended so abruptly. All she could sense was Annie's complete emptiness whenever she tried talking about it. It was partly why Teresa had decided not to reveal that their father had escaped from the hospital. Anya seemed too downhearted and Jamie so on edge lately, neither of them needed to hear more worrying news. Privately, Teresa nursed her distress. Sometimes the only thing that could restore her was a glass or two of wine. Every night she took a couple of painkillers before going to bed early. Her mother had been calling. She called the day Barry escaped and Teresa just about managed to keep it under her hat having convinced herself that she shouldn't talk to anyone about it, especially not her mother. The following week, though, Teresa felt she had to yield. Any change? I don't know. Don't the doctors tell you any more? They told me he left. How do you mean he left? I don't know. He's gone. Without any kind of... He didn't tell anyone where he was going. What are they going to do about it? The police are looking for him. I thought you were paying them. What's that supposed to mean? It sounds a shoddy service if patients can just walk away without telling anyone. It's nothing to do with shoddy service, Mother. I'm sure they'll find him. It had always been so tricky getting any sympathy out of her mother. Is he considered dangerous, she asked. Teresa groaned. What have you been saying to everyone? Meaning her brother. About Barry's problem? Is that what you call it? What do you want me to call it? It's a treatable condition. I'll call it whatever you like. I just don't want others charging in with their opinions when they don't know anything about it. Tony's not just others. What is he then? He's family. That's even worse. I've always been the height of discretion, my dear. The way her mother said it, Teresa knew she would soon get a flood of text messages, then calls, not only from Tony, but the wider family as well. She would have to go over the whole thing again and again, finding the right words to describe it, which is exactly what she was hoping for, but couldn't possibly admit it. What Teresa wanted now was relief from herself and this problem, which as yet had no tangible definition. She felt her life being shaped by something malevolent. What she longed for was company. She'd arranged for her nearest neighbor to come over and have lunch with them. It was the weekend after the unfortunate incident with Anya's school friend, and Teresa thought a generous dose of Rodney figure would do them all some good. Rodney would liven the atmosphere with his bloated wit and his shrewd eye for detail. On the menu was pork chops with garlic and mint sauce, string beans with caramelized onions, and mashed potatoes. Rodney came early, dressed for the occasion. He couldn't resist wearing the loudest checkered jacket he owned, almost sharp enough to play chess on, and a yellow bow tie, and so much aftershave Teresa could smell it through the garlic. As flamboyant as ever, presenting a bottle of white for her inspection and making excuses for his eccentric attire, Rodney announced, Someone has to wear bow ties. Timing it with the popping of the cork. <coughs> listening to Rodney made Teresa feel like she was listening to a Frank Sinatra song. She thanked him for the wine and apologized for not having the meal ready yet. She called for one of the children to come help with the table. I'm not in the way, I hope. 
Rodney tried to make himself smaller, squeezing up to the wall as he said it. More amateur dramatics, but he winked just to show he understood what he was doing. Not a bit, Teresa said, laughing in spite of herself, whisking the sauce. Why don't you pour some wine, she said. Now there's an offer I can't refuse. Perhaps I could lay the table as well. I wouldn't hear of it. Teresa called up the stairs. Jamie, Anya, we need help. How are the little dears? Rodney passed her a brimming glass, inspecting his own with a keen eye. After an embarrassed laugh, Teresa took a first sip, trying not to spill any. This is good, she said. Isn't it? Rodney admired his hostess drinking. He held his glass by the stem. He brought it to his lips and took a long whiff before tipping some into his mouth. Anya's not very happy, Teresa admitted. I thought things were looking up. She made a friend at school, but they fell out. Oh, what misery! And Jamie's been odd lately. Has he? Rodney looked pained. I don't want to trouble you with it. Not at all, he said. I suppose we're all still struggling to find our feet. Rodney knew nothing of why Teresa had moved to Devon, but she'd offered just enough information to lay the hint. In the years when the Hellers used to take their holidays in the village, Rodney had been introduced to her good husband and was astute enough to assume that some significant changes had occurred in the meantime. I perfectly understand, he said in a low rumble. You must allow me to be your humble assistant, he continued. Show me to the family silver. Teresa was happy to give way to Rodney's frippery. He got his way and began to lay the table, never missing an opportunity to compliment her. There were the wonderful smells as the pork sizzled. Then her choice of curtains caught his eye and he grew lyrical about the contrasting effect with the wallpaper. He was the perfect gentleman, Teresa thought. She didn't mind that he was bald and on the stout side and fancied himself so incredibly. It suited him, along with the showman antics and the suggestive eyes. By the time lunch was served, Jamie had appeared, but Anya hadn't. Rodney expressed his delight at seeing Jamie again. It had been all of two days. My dear fellow, how the devil are you? All right. Enjoying a brief respite from school, I trust? What? Excellent. Teresa and Rodney exchanged the looks of those who knew an uphill struggle when they saw one, in on the joke as Rodney forged ahead. Are you still in command of vast numbers of troops? Jamie grunted. Recreating the battles of history, Stalingrad, the D-Day landings. Kind of thing, Jamie said. Rodney poured himself some more wine and gave Teresa another languishing look. When I was your age, I really was quite stirred by the cry of battle, he said. I read every issue of Commando. Do you know it? Is it a comic? More than a comic, old thing. Teresa had begun to serve the food, vaguely spongy-headed but full of sympathy for Rodney. She handed him plentiful helpings of everything. It was her way of applauding him. She was glad he'd come. The wine before lunch made her feel she could even join in, putting on the same kind of act. Your lunch, sir. Madam, this is fit for a king. It would have been cosy but for Anya's absence. I'll just go and fetch Sleeping Beauty, she said. If I sit down, I won't be able to get up again. Please do start. Rodney watched his hostess go, raising a glass to her. I know when to start, he said, but I never know when to finish. 
She laughed on her way up the stairs and said something back neither Jamie nor Rodney could make out. When she was gone, he leant in towards Jamie for a confidential word. Somewhere in my loft, he whispered, I've got a real German revolver. Jamie's eyes widened. Do you? Rodney nodded. I had a great uncle who fought in the war. He was wounded in the Normandy landings. He took it off a dead German, gave it to me as a keepsake. Rodney lowered his voice even more. We can get it out and see if it still works if you like. Like a bug under a stone, Anya hadn't moved all day. She'd gone to bed and was trying to make herself as small as possible. The curtains were drawn and she was listening to music through her headphones. It was the usual dirge Teresa couldn't tolerate by the sound of it. Anya may as well have been listening to a train go by. The singer sounded like he was throwing up. Teresa removed one of the plugs from Anya's ear. She was upset and demanded to know what Anya was up to. Anya's reply was far away and muffled. I don't feel like eating. Don't eat the meat. There's plenty of mash and beans. I don't want anything. Rodney's been asking after you. When Anya made a violent movement, bouncing herself on the mattress, Teresa had to step back. Anya, what is the matter? I don't like him. The least you could do is come down. I don't want to. You're being impossible. I'm never going in a car with him again. Why should I have lunch with him? Something gave way in Teresa, like a gentle rain. What does it matter, she wondered. She sat and stroked the lump under the duvet. He was the first to understand you wanting to be independent, and I know he doesn't mind in the least. I'm still not coming down. So that was that. Teresa drifted back to the table with any number of excuses ready, but she wasn't going to be deterred from enjoying what otherwise should have been a pleasant lunch. She said Anya felt unwell, then admitted she thought it had more to do with falling out with her friend. Rodney was a chimney stack belching sympathy and support, billowing on about the trials the young must face, always with a glint in his eyes Teresa could play along with. It's been a tiresome winter, he said, but spring is on the doorstep and I imagine what you need now is a week in the sun. I know of some excellent bargains. That made Teresa snort. You haven't come here to sell me a holiday, have you? As soon as the discussion turned to faraway places, Teresa could see herself packing her bags. Being a man of the world, Rodney Figure's cure for predicaments and illness was to get away to some exquisite beach. He painted a lovely picture for her, with swaying palms and the gentle lap of waves along the sand, and not another person for miles. Bali, he suggested, or Goa. Or, if it's adventure you're after, what about trekking through the rainforests of Borneo? Or, if the tropics weren't to Teresa's taste, then a trip to the Austrian Alps, either an end-of-season ski trip, or simply taking rooms in any number of splendid resorts where each lung full of mountain air would be bracing, and guests were pampered until they knew the world was safe again. Jamie had finished eating and was bored with it. He wanted to ask to leave the table, but Rodney had Teresa hanging on all his colorful descriptions of faraway places. She was making all the right sounds, I wish sounds, if only sounds. It encouraged him. By accident, they'd slipped onto the subject of escape. 
Rodney mentioned he had this theory that people who came to live on Dartmoor were seeking solitude. It's always the ones who want to lose themselves who come here, he said. And maybe it was too sober or too accurate, because he looked slightly uncomfortable saying it. He shrugged, made sad dog eyes, and held his empty glass up. That made Teresa laugh once more. She was so grateful to be able to laugh. They'd moved on to a bottle of red. Rodney was speaking of the time he'd walked part of the abbot's way, starting at the old quarry and following all the crosses up to Hessery Tor, then down towards where the prison is, leering at Jamie when he mentioned the prison. Jamie was yawning so much Rodney leant in closer, winking for Teresa's benefit. There's a spot on Abbot's Way, he said, growling like a local farmer, where a man called Benji Gear was hanged by the neck for stealing sheep. Jamie was too embarrassed not to smile. They say Benji Gear comes back to haunt the hills, Rodney said, apparently satisfied with his performance. You didn't know that, did you? Jamie shook his head. Taking up the voice again, Rodney explained, You can only ever see him at dusk, which was when he was dispatched from this mortal life. I met a man on the moor at dusk, Jamie said, but I don't think it was Benji Gear. Teresa cleared her throat. We don't know who he could be, she said to Rodney, but he seems to have made an impression. Jamie said, He knew everything about the moon and ancient times. Rodney rested his hands on his bloated paunch. Was he tall and gnarly, he asked. Jamie smirked. Really tall. I mean, really tall. And did he have a bushy moustache? Jamie nodded. It could only be one man, Rodney said. Teresa didn't know whether to feel relieved or worried, the way Rodney's face seemed to darken. You think you know who he was, she asked. He lives outside the village in a cottage, Rodney said. Something about the slowness of it, the laboring of his words, alerted Teresa's mood. We meet now and again, he went on, but he's foreign. His name is Willie Borsuk. He told me he was married once, but no one knows much about his past. He's retired, very keen on the history of the moor, I believe. The atmosphere was changing, as if a veil had fallen and what was behind the veil could undermine every good feeling. Teresa realized she had a headache coming on, she noticed Rodney's cheeks had gone blotchy with wine. He's terribly friendly, Rodney continued, but he's made himself unpopular somehow. Teresa wanted to ask why, but didn't dare in front of her son. Don't get me wrong, Rodney said, turning to the boy. You mustn't go by what people say. I have a lot of time for the man. Whenever we meet, we get along fine. Even so, there is talk. Rodney turned back to Teresa when he said this. I'm sorry to have to report, old Willie is seen as a bit of an ogre by others in the village, perhaps of a less charitable disposition. Jamie was livid. He was shaking his head and his mouth was hanging. There were so many wrongs he wanted to put right, he was at a loss how to start. It was unacceptable that anyone should say anything bad about his new friend. All of this suddenly came out in a hot gush. Shut up! He knows how the universe began! Jamie! Teresa sat upright, trying to be forceful despite the pleasant fuzz of the afternoon. She demanded that Jamie apologize. Jamie banged the table with the flat of his hand and said how sorry he was, then ran upstairs. 
Rodney seemed mortified, trying to shrug it off, but he was clearly taken aback by the strength of Jamie's feeling. Her son's outburst stayed with Teresa into the evening and long into the night. She was afraid to sleep in case her dreams were too horrible. There had been so much emotion in what Jamie had said. Teresa couldn't recall how long it had been since he first came across this mysterious man, no more than a week at most, but she had been stunned at the force of Jamie's stand for someone he hardly knew. After what Rodney had said about him, her worry found new levels. Jamie's reaction implied that he might have had more contact with this Willie Borsuk since, and was actually hiding it from her. 